Romans 8, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And now we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And beginning at verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So far the reading of God's word. was mentioned earlier, it's our pleasure to have Jed Saville here from Riverbank Christian Church uh, to bring us our message this morning. Jed is the evangelism influence worker at Riverbank. Uh, he's doing MTS and studying part-time at the Reformed Theological College on a pathway to ordination. So we're very pleased to have you here, Jed, uh, to preach. And so I'll now hand it over to you. work through your words. May your, the truth of your words uh, stand out to us, penetrate our hearts, and may we know the glory of your God and our Son, uh, his Son, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Uh, please use this time for your glory, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, over the coming months, as we've heard, uh, myself, along with our two pastors from Riverbank, Jack and Reuben, uh, will be coming and preaching here in Alveston. And as we do this, uh, we're going to be sharing uh, each a sermon from a series we did uh, at the end of last year at Riverbank called Gentle and Lowly. 
Uh, Now this series draws its inspiration from a little uh, book by the same name, Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. If you haven't seen or read this book, uh, I would highly recommend it. Uh, It's full of nice short chapters, quite devotional, not too hard to read, uh, and full of beautiful truths about Jesus' heart, what's at the core of his being. And so we're going to be investigating uh, this topic. Uh, We're going to be looking at the question, who is Jesus? This God-man Jesus who came to be with us, who came to rescue us, who is he? What's he like? Perhaps you know what Jesus has done for you. You understand important doctrines like the incarnation and atonement. But do you also live with a deep awareness of his inmost heart for you? Do you know what he feels in the depths of his core every day towards you and me? That's what we're going to be looking at. Jesus' heart. And so as we begin by looking at this topic today, I'd like to start by asking you to think about a question. And the question is, do you think Jesus was a one-hit wonder? Now, Usually when we're talking about this phrase, one-hit wonder, uh, we're talking about a band or an artist, maybe an athlete or a celebrity who created one incredible song, one incredible hit, one incredible moment, yet they never managed to replicate or reach those same heights again. Maybe you can think of a one-hit wonder now. If you're into music, maybe you've heard of the songs Mumbo Number 5, Hooked on a Feeling, Gangnam Style or Dancing in the Moonlight. But can you remember Louis Beggar, Blue Suede, Psy or Top Loader, who sang those songs? My guess is probably not. Maybe there's a tennis fan out here who remembers Michael Chang, a 17-year-old who won the French Open, yet never returned to win another major title. And if you're a footy fan, maybe you remember Tom Boyd's one-hit wonder game in the 2016 Grand Final. There's also actors and other celebrities who have jumped onto our screens for a brief moment before vanishing again in an instant. These are all one-hit wonders. And today, I want us to consider the provocative question, was Jesus a one-hit wonder? And I don't mean the person Jesus, because he has quite clearly transformed and changed the course of history and continues to transform millions of lives right across the world. But rather, I want us to consider if Jesus is passionate loving heart towards you and me was just a one-hit wonder? Is Jesus' heart towards us like a raging fire that burns so intensely on the cross, yet is now faint and cold towards us? Did he love us on the cross, but never to the same extent again? Was it just a one-hit wonder moment in time? Today we're going to be considering this question by focusing on Jesus' heart towards us in the present. Day by day, moment by moment, what is Jesus' heart towards you and towards me? And to answer this question, we're going to look at three things. First, Jesus' past work. Then Jesus' present work. 
And finally, Jesus' present heart. So his past work, his present work, and his present heart. And so let's start by looking at this moment in time we're so familiar with, Jesus' past work, his death on the cross, and our resultant justification. This doctrine of justification is such a glorious truth that we as Christians cherish. It's a doctrine that each generation needs to revive and rediscover because it's such a counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right, we're declared just with God, not once we get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. The book of Romans unpacks this doctrine so beautifully and in terrific detail. If you're looking for a place to start to grasp the doctrine of justifications, I'd certainly recommend Romans. And so let's do that now. If you've got your Bible, please open it up to Romans 5, verse 1. And so in the lead up to Romans 5, in this uh, letter, Paul has been building his argument for justification by outlining God's judgment, that through the law we're all condemned, that not one of us is righteous, but instead righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. So that leads Paul to these words in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, Therefore, since we have all been justified through faith. You may notice that this is a statement that is completely about the past. Because our justification is a doctrine primarily about what Jesus has done in the past. He died for our sins in the past. He rose again in victory in the past. And as we place our faith in his past work, we are justified. Therefore, since we have been justified, the verse says, past complete justification through Jesus. And a few verses later, verses 6 to 8 of that same chapter, we receive insight into the heart of Jesus in the moment that he went to the cross to justify us. Verses 6 to 8 say this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why this doctrine of justification is so counterintuitive. It is common for us to forgive people once we've been compensated. To love people who are easy to love and to be generous to people who will be able to return the generosity. But Jesus has already justified us and demonstrated his loving heart for us while we were sinners. Not once we cleaned ourselves up, not once we demonstrate enough appreciation towards him, not once we've done our profession of faith or evangelized enough people. No. Instead, Jesus demonstrated the extent of his loving heart for us most clearly in this moment when he died for you and me, wretched sinners. 
And if we need further confirmation of this, a few chapters later, Paul stamps our justification. In Romans 8, 33 and 34, which Lavina uh, read for us before, he says this, Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. That is the glorious truth about the doctrine of justification. Who can condemn us? No one. But it is Jesus who has justified you through faith. That is what Jesus has already accomplished. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, then I want you to know that this is the heart of Christianity and what separates it from all other religions. Other religions suggest that if you work hard enough, clean yourself up and serve God well enough, then maybe God will accept you. Whilst Christianity, or rather Jesus, says you are saved because of what he has done. Because he accepted you. Because he loved you. Because he died for you. This is what makes it so amazing. Our salvation, our atonement, our justification have been achieved in the past conclusively. And if at any time or any moment we ever doubt our salvation, let's not place our confidence in our present action. Let's place our confidence in what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross. But how does this moment in time, 2,000 years ago, on the cross where Jesus' heart burned with such intensity and love, connect to God's heart for us now? Is there a connection or was his past work of immense love just a one-hit wonder? Has his heart petered out, never to reach the same heights of, of love again? Well, that's what we're going to begin to explore now. Our second point, Jesus's present work. And if we continue reading verse 34 of Romans 8, it reveals to us what Jesus' present work is. So please read it with me. It says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So more than just his past work, Jesus who was raised to life is presently seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Intercession is therefore what God is doing now. Intercession is his present work. But how does his present work of intercession connect to his past work of justification? Well, to explore this, we're going to need to strengthen our understanding of intercession. And let's start this by asking the simple question, what is intercession? Uh, and that's not actually a simple question, is it? Uh, if you're sitting there thinking it's not easy to comprehend uh, this concept, well, that makes two of us. Uh, I've had to wrestle with the details of intercession quite a lot myself as I prepared for this message as it's not something we talk about a lot or are familiar with. So, what is intercession? 
Intercession is the act of intervening or mediating on behalf of someone else. Uh, and as we heard in the kids' talk, it's such as a lawyer interceding on behalf of a client or a parent interceding as a fight breaks out between siblings or a real estate agent interceding on behalf of the landlord or tenant. The core of intercession is that someone has a need and therefore requires someone else to intercede or to intervene on their behalf. For instance, my uh, grandpa has been slowly deteriorating for a number of years now, and this has meant that he's no longer able to do the many things he used to. Instead, he now requires my grandma to do these things on his behalf, such as cooking every meal for him, doing all the driving, looking after the backyard, even helping him move around the house. And maybe you can relate uh, to this because you have a family member who also requires extra help, who needs intercession. But if we've already been completely justified by Jesus' past work, why do we need an intercessor? Why does Jesus need to intercede on our behalf before God? Is something incomplete here? Is God not satisfied? Do we still require extra help? In our main passage today, Hebrews 7, the connection and relationship between Jesus' past work and his present work is revealed to us more clearly. And this is particularly done by comparing the priesthood of the Old Testament with the priesthood of Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, it was the role of the priest to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. And the priest's role as intercessor involved two main aspects. So firstly, they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And to do this, the priest needed to first make himself ceremonially clean by bathing and then by offering a sacrifice for his own sins because an unclean person cannot enter into the presence of God. So once he completed this, then he was able to proceed and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel for their sins. So firstly, his role was to uh, sacrifice on behalf of the people. And then secondly, he would then offer up these requests these petitions to God on behalf of the people of Israel. And these two aspects are deeply intertwined. Because you see, as the priest intercedes by offering requests and petitions on behalf of the people of Israel, what he's actually doing is applying what the sacrifice has already accomplished. The answer is therefore not that our justification is incomplete, but rather Jesus, our intercessor, is applying what his sacrifice on the cross has already accomplished through his petitions and requests. And in Hebrews 7, particularly verse 25, we can observe this splendid picture of how Jesus, day by day, moment by moment, is interceding for you and me. Let me read verse 25 to you of Hebrews 7. It says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 
Jesus is able to say completely, or this word could be translated utterly, totally, absolutely, comprehensively. Jesus is able to say completely because of three things. First, in comparison to all other priests, Jesus lives forever. Unlike in verses 23 and 24 of Hebrews 7, where it states that death has prevented all other priests from being able to intercede, in contrast, Jesus lives forever. Secondly, in comparison to all other priests, Jesus is already eternally clean. In verse 26, it differentiates Jesus from all other priests by stating that such a high priest as Jesus truly meets our needs because he is the only one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And thirdly, in comparison to all other priests, his sacrifice is sufficient and final. In verse 27, it distinguishes him again by stating that unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so because Jesus lives forever, because he is holy, blameless and pure, and because his sacrifice is sufficient and final, he's able to save completely and he's able to continue his work of intercession. That is why the New Testament worlds justification and intercession together, just as we've seen in both Romans 8 and Hebrews 7, they cannot be separated. In contrast, if we only knew about Jesus' work of justification and not his continual work of intercession, we could easily be tempted to view our justification as merely a mechanical formality. Plus, we could begin to believe that Jesus' heart has faded for you and me. But instead, Jesus' ongoing intercession is like the day-by-day, moment-by-moment application of our justification. Like the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. It's not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. Rather, it reflects the fullness and victory of his past-completed work. However, if, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might be thinking to yourself, of course, of course Jesus saves completely. But if you're anything like me, you have this unceasing impulse to strengthen or contribute to his saving work, to somehow attempt to justify or certify the decision and the reason why Jesus has saved you. Or maybe you're a new Christian. Or you doubt your salvation at times. You think to yourself, surely Jesus will change his mind because my sin is so great, it's so repulsive, it's so constant. If Jesus really knew my heart, there's no way he would want to save me. But that, that is exactly the point. Because Jesus 
always lives to intercede for you and me, to apply in your life what he has already accomplished, your justification. You can be so confident that you are saved completely, utterly, entirely, because Jesus' present heart continues to burn with such great longing for you. And that's our third point, Jesus' present heart. There is this objective reality of our salvation, which we seem to grasp more clearly and more easily, that we have been justified not by meeting the standard of the law, but by the blood Jesus spilled. But on the other hand, there's also this subjective reality, which we struggle to grasp as strongly in our inner being. The subjective reality is the sheer readiness that is in Jesus' heart to receive you and do for you what you need most. Nothing pleases Jesus more than to give away what he's already accomplished and to bestow it upon us, the weary and the needy. The truth is there is no Christian ever who hasn't had their name mentioned by the Son to the Father And please, please, do not picture a son as he pleads before a reluctant and callous father. No, the father's heart is not cold. He does not need convincing or persuading by his son. He delights to say yes to Jesus. The father, God, delights to hear the pleading requests of his son, who sits at his right hand. He delights to hear them. He delights to answer them. This was something the Father and the Son joyously planned in eternity past. If we read verse 25 again, it says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. We're coming to a delighted father who has an overjoyed son who is thrilled to ever live and plead to the father on our behalf. And the father is elated to respond to the son's plea in jubilant agreeance. As every Christian's name is constantly brought by the son to the father with love in his heart, that same love that brought him to earth and to the cross, the father repeatedly, with a wide grin, cheek to cheek on his face, joy in his heart, delights to say yes, yes, yes. How often do we really stop, pause, and ponder and acknowledge that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father as we speak interceding for you? I know I can easily convince myself that Jesus' heart is distant. But theologian Louis Burkhoff, while speaking about Jesus' work of intercession, says this. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. But what if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room? Few things would calm us more deeply. How profound. And what might the content of Jesus' plea before the Father be? His prayer 
to the Father be for us? Well, in John 17, we receive a glorious glimpse, and it's just a glimpse of Jesus' prayer, his intercession for his disciples and for us. Let me just read to you a number of Jesus' prayer requests in John 17. Verse 11, he says this, Protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 13, his prayer is that they may have the full measure of joy within them. Verse 15, my favourite, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As Jesus intercedes by bringing your name before the Father, he does not pray that we be taken out of this world, that all temptation be removed, that life become a breeze, No, something even better. He prays for protection from the evil one, for unity among believers, for the full measure of Jesus' joy, for sanctification by the truth. If you're someone who feels like Jesus begrudgingly forgave you, or you sense that he was coerced or forced to be in a relationship with you, or that he is disappointed with your progress, please know, please know that that is not Jesus' heart for you. He will never give up on you. He will never stop praying for you until you arrive home safely into the presence of God in heaven. Jesus' intercession reflects his gentle and lowly heart for his people the same heart that carried him through life on earth and down into death on behalf of his people, which Reuben will share with you in a few weeks' time. It is the same heart that will never drive us away, that, will, that shall lose none of those the Father has given him, which Jack will be sharing next week. Jesus' present heart, his interceding heart, is the same heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with and reminding and prevailing upon his Father to always welcome us. And the Father joyfully obliges. Intercession is not just an abstract, nice afterthought from Jesus. It is his vital, primary, present work on behalf of the people he loves. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not a one-hit wonder. He did not retire after his resurrection. He is not resting. He is not having a break or living off past glories. No. He is joyfully still working, and his heart is still as deeply affectionate towards you now as it was during his time on earth. The doctrine of Jesus' heavenly intercession is one of the more neglected doctrines in the church today. We marvel as we should at the amazing past work of Jesus, but we would be doing ourselves a great disservice if we didn't equally marvel at the present, continual, intercessory work of our beloved Saviour. His intercessory work continues to display his heart for his people, his heart which Dane Ortland 
in his book, Gentle and Lowly, illustrates so wonderfully for us. And I'll finish by sharing a quote from his book. Dane says this. Think of it this way. Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but is now dissipated now that he is in heaven. It is not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but is now cooled down, settling back once more into kindly indifference. No, his heart is as drawn to his people now as ever, and it, as was it was in his incarnate state. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant delight to forever intercede on their behalf. What a comforting truth. What a great and glorious God we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we want to praise you and bring glory to your name because of your Son. Your Son uh, that loved us so dearly that he went to the cross to save sinners like us who rebelled against him. And Lord, we thank you so much that you have opened our eyes to see these glories. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that God's heart, Jesus' heart for us is still the same. He cares for us deeply. He longs to bestow on us his blessings to forgive us, and Lord, we often struggle to acknowledge that and to realise that. And so please, by your Spirit, Lord, comfort our hearts, uplift us and draw us near to our Saviour, who has forgiven us and who constantly lives to intercede and plead for us. Lord, we pray these things all in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his glory, we pray. Amen.